0: Welcome to episode 130 of Literary Disco, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Today, we pack up the convertible and head into the desert with Hunter S. Thompson's (laughs) classic drug-fueled journey to Las Vegas, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's all hallucinations, paranoia, and the invention of gonzo journalism. I am actor and filmmaker, Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality, Julia Pistel, and novelist and critic, Todd Goldberg. Hey, guys. Hi.
1: Hey. How you doing?
0: Doing good. Um, this, this book did not put me in a great mood. I finished it <laughs> right before we started recording. Uh, guys. I, you I feel like... This was a reread like for a, me, and, and, and I thought I would enjoy it a lot more than I did, but we'll, we'll get into it. But no, it put me in a yes. dark place.
1: It took it put me in a dark place too, and I it was a reread for me too. But I also don't think I actually read the whole book. Was that like a highlights version <laughs> of this book? Yeah, it's,
0: it's a 1998 movie starring Johnny, With Depp. Johnny Depp and Benicio oh, Del Toro. And Benicio Del Toro. Oh, oh, yeah. oh my god. <laughs>
1: well, what have you guys been doing this summer? We've we've had a little bit of a break, so we took a little bit of time off. Um, listeners, if you're wondering, we. You know, we have lives. Um, Ryder uh, goes to the woods yep. and takes photos of his child dressed as Michael Jackson, which is something I think we need to talk about. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Julia, you've been taking your child places and taking adorable photos. I've mostly just been sitting inside my house um, writing murder fiction. Could, could we briefly, Ryder, discuss your child's descent into late-year Corey Feldman? <laughs>
0: Wait. Oh, was that? Did Corey Feldman go through a Michael Jackson stage? I didn't know this.
1: Yeah. Yes. Okay.
0: Well, yeah. yeah, So (laughs) there was a period where (laughs) my son started saying, you know, like the werewolf and Thriller, and we were like, "What are you talking about?" Because we knew he had heard the song Thriller, but we, why would he? And it turns out uh, my in-laws thought it would be a good idea to show him the music video for Thriller.
2: Amazing. That's not. That's not appropriate. It is
0: terrifying. Uh, and, you know, they realized after a minute and a half that it was terrifying and did the w- even worse thing, which was, oh, my God, this is scary, and turned it off. Uh. So then he got this incredible fascination with yeah. it and wanted to know what happens and where, what happens to the lady and why is Michael Jackson, you know, a werewolf? And then he's not a werewolf. So we were like, we kept, you know, he kept bringing it up, kept bringing it up. We were finally like, okay, you asked for it. We're watching this and we're watching the whole thing. And we watched the video oh start to finish. And we told him it's not scary it's all makeup it's all fun and he fell in love with dancing and he started imitating all and learning the entire thriller dance and i'm telling (gasps) you guys it is uncanny it is creepy i am i am the whitest white person ever i am the worst dancer i am super repressed i you know only can really drunk at weddings do i ever bust a move and I'm so and proud of And you call it him. busting a move, so. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> That's a full picture.
0: So he just, you know, so we really started encouraging it because he really, you know, he's not a sports guy. He's not into anything but dancing. Like, this is his physical activity, and he loves it. Aww. Uh And so this whole summer, if anybody comes over to our house, he makes us put on Thriller, and he does the full dance. He also does all of Billie Jean. Um, he... Oh. All of Billy Jean. Yes, he does all the moves, and so we finally, just two weeks ago, uh, the a dance class started up, a hip hop dance class, and he's in love with it, and this is his thing. And so Michael Jackson, you know, we we've avoided any discussions of what <laughs> what Michael Jackson was actually like, or you know, the the, the more problematic could, areas of Michael Jackson. Yeah, I mean, I think mean, um, you can talk
1: about that when he's thirty. Yeah, I don't, I, don't think, um, I don't think three is the time. But yeah, it's been you know,
0: well. But you know, he he has asked. Well, okay. So we made, you know, when you run out of Michael Jackson videos and, and dan- you go onto YouTube, and there's later Michael Jackson concerts, and when we showed him like the 30th anniversary dance of Billie Jean, he was baffled. He didn't, he didn't think it was Michael Jackson. And it is. It's traumatizing. The guy looks like a monster. And and he actually asked. He said, "Why does he have white skin now?" And you know, it's like, ooh, okay, we're going there. Um, right. You know, so it's 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 complicated. But uh, in general, it's been it, it's been a pretty crazy obsession. We even have like he wanted, You know, he also has an obsession with Legos. So we were able to track down a Michael Jackson zombie Lego figure. Um, <laughs> But you know, now it's ninjas. Now, now he's all into Ninjago and ninjas and Legos. So, but the dancing is still a very real thing, and and he's really good at it, and uh, it makes me very proud. It's really can, fun to watch. Can him. Alex
1: dance? Does Alex Alex have the can moves?
0: dance? Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, Alex does a lot of sort of like ironic dancing. She's mm. very good right. at like uh, interpretive dancing, and she's wonder and she's really good. Like, but it's always sort of jokey. Uh, and Indy is very earnest and very good. <laughs>
2: That's adorable.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm I'm trying to encourage it as much as possible.
1: Um, you know, well, you will let me know when he foods. gets into his sort of Dr. Dre era, yeah. and I can I can roll in and be like, let's let's do the. Oh, G thing. Odd. He's taking no. a hip
0: hop class, and Alex and I, neither of us listen to hip hop, so we just know that our house is going to start getting flooded with stuff that we don't know or listen yeah. to. It'll be it'll be interesting.
1: That's when Uncle Todd comes over and teaches. He teaches India the history of gangster rap. Yeah, please. (laughs) I'm happy to do that for Vega as well. Uh,
2: She's already got a fair amount. She listens to everything.
0: (laughs) She's like you. She's
2: a music addict. She listens to music all day long. And it's the only sign language that she consistently does is music.
1: That's awesome. Um, It's
2: so cute. That is cool. Um, speaking of scary things, here's something that I've been up to, guys. I watched *Hereditary* yesterday. Have you seen this movie?
1: Oh yeah, I saw the. I've seen that it's on demand.
2: Yeah. I think I may not ever watch a horror movie ever again. And I love horror <laughs> movies. I had to sleep with the lights on. I got so really? freaked out.
0: It's a really well-made movie. It's yeah, really I, I might have talked about it when I came back from Sundance this year. I. Yeah, I mean, it's just, there's so many great sequences in it, and it's kind of like a sequence every five minutes. Uh, but I think it's also a mess.
2: Probably, like, but it's, it's way too real.
0: Mythology wise, none of it really adds up to anything. It's That's, just kind of like,
2: this is what I need eh. to hear because. Yeah. The, the big twist that happens early in the movie, I just couldn't even, like, survive Don't worry,
0: it no, I, I haven't watched Oh, it it's a great twist. So that's, that's the best part of the whole movie. About 15 minutes in, the movie takes a right turn where you're like,
2: what? Yeah. And
0: it's it's kind of relentless from that point on. So,
2: listeners, if you love horror movies, I would say there's, like, one every five years that, like, truly scares me. And I'm always surprised <laughs> which one it is. And this was it.
1: Oh the last God. one
2: was Paranormal Activity. Really scared me as well.
1: <laughs> so I, I haven't seen any decent movies all summer long. I've, I've, I've just been in a shell. I'm a shell of a man.
0: Okay. You know, there's crappy movies all summer long. Now is when good movies start coming yeah. out. It's award season, you know. That's that's what happened. But
2: you are a shell of a man. Yeah, like a shell of a man, arguing with people on the internet. Well, actually, and writing crime fiction.
1: I saw one, like I saw one movie this summer, and it was such a predictable movie that I went to go see. I went and saw that Omar or that Oscar Isaac movie where he's a Mossad agent hunting down the Nazi. But the problem was that it's a true I don't even story. Know what you're talking about. Yeah, it was. I is this a dream? It was called Operation Final Operation, something like that.
2: It, I hope this uh, is just a weird dream you have. No, no, it came out
1: like it, Ben Kingsley's <laughs> in it, playing um, Adolf Eichmann, and Oscar Isaac is a Mossad agent, and he goes and they they get him in Buenos Aires or something and bring him back to Israel. But the problem is that it's a true story, and the true story is like they figured out where he was. They sent the Mossad team out. The Mossad team picked him up, and brought him back to Israel. <laughs> so like it's just a lot of sitting around. Like yeah, I guess we'll go back to Israel now, and I was like, murder him! Somebody kill somebody! (sighs) You wanted to quit in Tarantino. Yeah, which is weird because when I saw *Inglorious Bastards*, I was like, this is Holocaust fan fiction. Like, oh yeah, the Jews Mm -hmm. struck back, so I didn't like that movie. But in this case, I was like, can't we have some sort of torture situation with the the Nazis? (sighs) It didn't happen. But... Instead, I got some torture by reading um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. All right, let's All right, nice do segue. it. Hey, look at that.
0: All right, so um, this book was initially published as a series of uh, essays, articles, fictional essays. Uh, I don't really know how to qualify that. In Rolling Stone magazine in 1971, and then it came out in book form in 1972. Um, I guess technically it is it is fiction because... Um, the real story is he combined a couple different trips to Vegas right. with, um, with you know, into one epic drug-fueled trip. Um, but yeah, it's become a cult classic, a very popular book, and then it was made into a movie that it was tried to it attempted to be made into a movie many many times, and then it was finally made into a movie by Terry Gilliam in 1998, which is when I remember just reading this book for the first time. I guess. I guess, you know, the 90s were really kind of obsessed with the 70s, and so this book was really popular among other 15, 16-year-olds mm-hmm. that I knew back then, and I remember everybody was reading it, I read it, and then saw the movie, and uh, yeah, I mean, I remember being feeling like I should always like Hunter S. Thompson, and that I should like this book, and should have liked the movie more, and I was always vaguely disappointed. And now rereading it, I, I think I kind of understand why. Um, but let's hear uh, let's hear, let's hear from a a new a new a new th- a new, th- new reader Julia, what did you, this was the first time you read this book right? Yes,
2: this is my first encounter. I've always meant to read it, of course, especially being a creative nonfiction grad, which is this is like it's obviously fiction, but really interesting, in that it's based on a true story um but yeah i came into it like thinking it was gonna be more like serious and journalist heavy you know heavier than you know because i've read so many other things from this era for my degree at bennington and the fact that this was like fucking ridiculous and
1: (laughs) had a a lot of humor in
2: it or attempts at humor i was pleasantly surprised i gotta say now i think my expectations were lower we're coming at it from very different places like this was never my like cool cool boy book you know right um but i was just like oh this is just like a fifty thousand times more fucked up on the road and it seems to have a sense of humor about itself so i was like okay i read it i can talk about it now i didn't feel personally (laughs) horrified (laughs) although like a moment a thought I had that crystallized in my mind that definitely gave me a perspective too was this book is almost 50 years old
1: yeah it's, came out in 1972 I think it takes place in old, 1971 46, and I right. think
2: of that you know I think we all think of that as recent but this is almost half a century old it's as old which, as I am
1: so I'm gonna go jump off this fucking building <laughs> right now um yeah
2: but you know what I mean? Like, I, it, it made me feel a lot more forgiving than I would have if I was reading it now. You know, by someone who had written it now. I
0: mean. right. right, right. And I and I guess that's part of the, the, what I kept trying to to reorient myself to think, you know, because so much of the book is this positioning between the, the, the narrator and his attorney against a sort of square culture. Right. And, you know, they're always, it's like them, doing all, this drugs, all these drugs and getting away with all this awful behavior in, in the face of police officers and DA agents and hotel people. And, um, but I guess, I guess what's so horrifying is how easy it is for them to get away with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't, you know, I kept thinking like, oh, this is gonna, this, there is a cultural criticism that does fit the 70s in here because it, th- there was a lot of conservative uh, group think that they were sort of battling against by by embracing these, these drugs and this these behaviors but I don't know man I just I, I finally I was like no this is exactly the wrong way to position yourself as an outsider in order to critique mm. the culture at large it, it felt more like let's expand our insiderness with how cool we are yeah but wait uh, a second
2: I want to push back on that already you're skipping what i think is the major criticism is they're not really responding to like 50s or early 60s repression they're also responding to the ineffectiveness of let's love everybody and be open-minded of the mid to late 60s so this is more of a that totally failed let's go fucking wild and it's very individualistic like it's much Mm -hmm. less like we're speaking for everybody and we're going to save the world it's like We can't do anything, so let's see what we can get away with. That's all I would say that the thesis of the book is to me.
1: So I I come from this from three different perspectives. So the first time I read this, I read it in college. So I read it in 1990, and I lived with a bunch of guys named Chad. And what I would do with all these guys named Chad is – we would get as many uh, different drugs um, and alcohol-based items and guns, and we'd rent a car from Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and we'd drive to Vegas. Jesus Christ. Because that's what you do when you grow up in the San Fernando Valley and you read Hunter S. Thompson and you're surrounded by a bunch of people who have access to drugs, guns, and money, is you're like, I just read the greatest book ever. Let's get fucked up and drive to Vegas. Let's go to Baker, go to the thermometer, and take our fucking pants off. So, like, I had an experience with Fear and Loving in Las Vegas from, like, 1990 to 1994, where a lot of times, on a Tuesday night, a bunch of drunken, fucked-up frat boys, and there was always some Jewish kid, you know, who had his dad's gun, and we would drive to Vegas.
2: Why would you need a gun? Are you shooting... Geckos in the desert? Well,
1: because that's what they do in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. There's a gun.
2: Yes, I know, but...
1: But in this case, also, you have to put it in mind that I was with, like, quasi-San Fernando Valley gangsters. So, rich Jewish kids who thought they were thugs because they listened to House of Pain. And so, they would wear hoodies and baseball caps and, and have their dad's gun tucked into their belts. But they were frat boys who went to Cal State Northridge. These guys are all now cops, incidentally. If you wonder what happens to these guys. But see, that's
0: exactly that's exactly to my point, is that this book purports to be this rebellious right. act when instead it's embracing, by embracing hedonism to the extreme that it does, it only furthers the sort of culture of squareness. Right. It only rationalizes that whole mentality. So the, I, that, I that's
1: the one side of it where I read it and all my frat boy friends and I would go get drunk and, and act like assholes in Las Vegas. Then there was the period of time where I lived in Las Vegas, and I read it again because I was now living in Las Vegas, and I thought the book was uh, doing real damage to this place I lived, because it was making people come to Las Vegas and act like an asshole. Because Mm -hmm. I lived in Vegas in 1998, which is when the movie came out, people started to get interested in it again, they did the whole reprint version with the Johnny Depp uh, cover, everyone was coming to Vegas and acting like Hunter S. Thompson. And then I read it just now, and my thought was, I feel so bad for all the copy editors who ever had to work with this drug addict at every magazine <laughs> yep. that he worked at. Yep. Yep. So, like, it, it's... It, and I... It's also... I just I just didn't enjoy it. I just I just did, lo- did not like reading it. I just... I, I thought it was showy to the point of absurdity, which I guess is the point. Um, but I also read it right after watching three days of the condor for the first time in like 15 years. And they're both sort of responding in a way to this same thing, which is the post-free love Vietnam Nixon era of paranoia Mm -hmm. of the government, um, paranoia of law enforcement, uh, of never knowing who's watching you or or if you're being watched. You know, all these different things that are playing into it. And so it was like a a brief trip for me to 1974 um, and... Not that I was—I was—I was three, so I don't remember it. But you know that whole era of paranoia, which turns out was probably correct. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I the the whole—and we can get to this later, I'm sure. But the whole idea of gonzo journalism that Hunter S. Thompson created essentially has formed a legion of just assholes who happen to work in journalism. <laughs> like I'm gonna <can> get <laughs> fucked up and go report on some shit. Right. You know, I just—I don't know. Do I? I feel like I sound like I'm 500 years old now.
2: I was just well, going to no. say, you do. It's—it's <laughs> as so old. It's, it's old as this book. As old as this
1: book, exactly.
0: I—I I mean, I, I, I guess I was hoping for some resonance with our current political mode. You know, because I think there are a lot of parallels between the Nixon era and the 70s, sure. um, and and our current time. And I found none of that. I found it useless. I found it as a as a guidepost uh for how to be critical of our current paranoid police state, you know, fears that everybody's corrupt at the top like uh or any sort of interpretation that I could walk away with going, "Oh, this is a good perspective or this is this is something that that does last or that, that I can carry forward into this moment." I found it there was nothing. It was just like you were saying, I mean, I think there, you know, there's the one passage, um, the one famous passage, which I remember, is, I remembered it vividly. And it was in the movie verbatim. Um, it's it's called The Wave right. Speech. Do you guys yeah. know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's actually great. a brilliant yeah. little passage. And it's the most salient part of the book. It's the mo- I mean, he was probably the only time he was sober while he was writing. <laughs> and it nails something. It nails exactly like what you guys are saying, this sort of, you know, this generation caught between the free love moment, and, 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 and then, of course, the references to Manson. There's like mm-hmm. three references to Manson throughout the book. So it feels like, oh, he's kind of saying something important about, her, about the time, and, and, but really I don't think he had anything to say other than, and this is to your point, Todd, other than the gonzo journalism factor, mm-hmm. which is a sort of meta point that I think survives and is valuable but is almost despite Hunter S. Thompson right. himself.
1: Right. And I, I think, you know, having read a lot of other Hunter S. Thompson, so like his political journalism, for instance, a lot of the stuff that he did for Rolling Stone um, that's collected in other places, he's obviously a far more lucid writer when he's writing straight nonfiction than when he is, you know, this hybrid form. I mean, this is a novel. It's not It's not Hunter S. Thompson. He's, you know, Raul Duke. Um, but even still like you know he, he found good important things to talk about and, and he expressed himself well in some of those articles. but I think that that Jan Wenner must have been editing the living shit out of him to get this stuff to be coherent because then later in his career when you read his stuff, it's just you know it's just rambling it, you know it's it's a sometimes funny look at a drug addict writing about the world. Um, but I don't I don't see what the existential truth is that people find in this book compared to, say, on the road which this is clearly you know uh, a rehashing of in a in a kind you know 10 years later or actually yes it's, i guess it's 15 years later when did it on the road come out 56 or something uh, the 40s 40s 1957 57. oh yeah. wow all
2: right 57 yep. so wow. you
1: know almost 15 years after on the road this comes out and i mean you can see the influence in it obviously and he's coming from the bay area at this point but i don't i don't know i i, I didn't find like, I have to talk to a friend of mine who is a big fan of it. Like, maybe David Ulam is a big fan of it and have him explain to me why it's important as a piece of uh, American journalism slash criticism, because I, I just don't see it.
0: Well, maybe that's not the point. Maybe it is just supposed to be funny. And I just didn't find it very funny. I, I don't I mean, Julia, you said you made a comment about humor or attempts yeah. at humor. No, How often I thought do it was you think funny. It was actually. Oh, OK.
2: I thought detail, okay, so it's full of details, you know, it's, it doesn't have those big sweeping, like, Joan Didion or Jack Kerouac passages, so, like, this is what the era is, but it does have things like 600 bars of soap that you have to get rid of that somebody put in your convertible, you know, or, uh, seeing everyone as lizards as you're tripping out on acid these aren't good examples but for <laughs> or coming... dealing
0: with a underage girl that you've raped and given drugs and have to get rid of her you can sure be a... that's the comedy can... that's the comedy for judges. like 20 pages <laughs> Yep. Right. if you do that or that's your ticket or the comedy to the of a white guy being able to outrun a cop and then talk his way out of a ticket well that part I while he's still <laughs> drunk
2: sure but
0: this is the comedy though it's oh. that's the humor right isn't it sort of based on a ridiculous like you have to identify with him and his situation and think that it's okay in order for it to be funny. Or I mean, I don't know the cartooning ish, the the cart the, the oversized cartoon version of himself that he keeps sort of presenting as a joke was just to me like no, you're just an asshole. Like this just sucks, <laughs> man. Like this is, do something you know do your drugs. I don't I mean, I'm not judging you for doing drugs, but. All the other shit, like, 90% of what else you're doing is pretty fucking awful. And and, and I'm supposed to be on your side against the people that you're judging? Like, no.
2: I- yeah, I mean, you're, you're totally right. It's not an arguable point that there's a million sexist and racist moments in here. Um, I think he's trying to present himself, talking about the writing only, as, like, kind of a hapless you know it's almost it's slapstick that's what this book right. is it this is, slapstick. is right. drug slapstick so it's silly mm, at that's times a good point. and that's how he's like writing this character is like oh my god i i got hired to write this piece and my attorney friend is like forcing me to do this and you know xyz and that's like just from a point of view as a piece of writing it's there is like art there are artful moments like i would say i liked it more as he obviously got more sober
0: right. um,
2: <laughs> because it's definitely a decline the whole book yes. is a decline which is interesting um, but this dialogue passage right at the end where he is kind of fucking with this girl at a restaurant a waitress and he's like where's the american dream and she's like thinks he's talking about some building in town and then they go there and it's nothing you know
0: psychiatrist club yeah um
2: i don't know it's just i don't think i didn't take this book seriously going in so i'm not as upset about it coming out Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i also think i don't think these eras are related to where we are now because we're probably in the most earnest era in american history like we want to fix things we want to solve things in a way that's just this. There's none of this attitude well, going not, on not in, book, in the world but, that I live
1: but, in. But you know, the the hippie generation and um, our generation. There's some obvious some parallels, you know, and and wanting to change government and change the world and be about peace and love. Now, peace and love have maybe been replaced with you know interconnectivity or whatever, you know, and social justice yeah. exactly. Um, but it's, you know, you're still talking about progressives or liberals that are trying to fight against a conservative machinery at that time. Um, so I think the, the and Thompson, of course, at the time was working for Rolling Stone, which was the key progressive magazine of the of the era. Um, now it's just a lot of pictures of Ariana Grande. Um, I get it. I subscribe. Um, well, actually, and, I mean, I think the, the closest parallel or the...
0: the it, the Burning Man phenomenon, right. Right? right? like here's here's a festival that started as this political countercultural thing. And it has component, I mean, I've never been, but I know lots of people who have gone and go. And I know people on all sides of the sort of spectrum that Burning Man represents. like you're saying, Julia, there is a huge earnest mm-hmm. contingent to Burning Man, right? The like people that believe it's about the art and it's about the sense of community and um, and uh, you know, lack of money. And all these things that make Burning Man this, like, super special political protest thing. But then, I think there's an even greater condition. I would say probably 50% of the people that go to Burning Man, if not more, are just there to have a Hunter S. Thompson (laughs) kind of experience. Where it's like, do as many drugs as possible, have as much sex as possible, and be just kind of grossly hedonistic, because that's the point of it. And the fact that those two things, like, intermingle and become, like, a sort of... Like I guess what bothers me and what, what i mean I totally came into this book with with these pre expectations i guess you're you're right I, that i i I feel like there's a whole gener, there's a whole type of dude out there, and yes, it is a dude, and it's always a privileged dude with money or you know some some sort of pr- status of privilege brandishing this book is like ha! Uh, this is like a badge of honor that I've read this book, and I get it that I'm on the inside of the sort of Hunter s. Thompson worldview, and I think it's hysterical and I guess that's the person that I was sort of arguing with in my head when I writing this book, which is probably a little unfair because. You know, that's an extreme cartoon that I'm creating in my head. And he's, his book is all about creating cartoons out of other people. So maybe that's just my problem. I don't know, but I, I still can't get over it. It's that's not kind of a, a
2: problem that you're woke. I think it's like,
1: <laughs> that's Someone's you know... going to quote that on Twitter later. <laughs> uh, I,
2: I mean, I feel like for me, there's so many versions of that dude in every single piece of literature I've ever read. That this doesn't feel like a standout example, to be honest with you. Like, how is this that different than on the road? Tell well, me how this on
0: is the, on, the, on the Road is a masterpiece. In, I know, in it's like rich. your
2: favorite book. But so, actually, but the closest, talking.
0: no, the, you know what? The closest parallel in Kerouac's oeuvre is uh, Big Sur. Mm-hmm. Big Sur is an amazing book, and it's, On the Road is, is, is Kerouac's worst book, I have to say. It's, it's the book that everyone reads, because it was his, you know, not his first, it was, but it was his first most, uh, you know, famous book. And it's the one that sort of defines so much of his style and the sort of personal narrative, Mingling of reality and fiction and all that, but it's boring as shit. There's no plot. There's no story and it's you know It has lots of weird You know issues with it of course, but Big Sur which is his descent into alcoholism Where he was dealing with his fame and went off to the Big Sur on a sort of road trip slash camping slash? I'm gonna sober up adventure that turns into a nightmare that is exactly like the sort of visionary hallucinogenic moments that Hunter S. Thompson uh, brings up, but as a work of fiction, the actual writing is incredible, and his descriptions of his mental state, and he's much more uh, self-referential, even in On the Road, you know, like there's, there's, there's a sensitive guy at the heart of On the Road. I mean, there's this passage in On the Road, for instance, where he is by himself, you know, finally he's been following this guy Dean around forever, and, and, and he's finally by himself on the road, and he goes to like a local baseball game or whatever town he's in, and um there are black people there and he like has this moment of like oh wow what he, he what does he call them he calls the, he calls everybody the Fallaheen of the world or he has like a term he makes up for the sort of underclasses which are people of color and not women of mm-hmm. course cuz Carac was an incredible misogynist could never extend <laughs> his sympathies to women very far but you know that you felt within him this desire to understand other people's experience and that's like the that's the impetus for on the road it's about so when he's trying to find the American dream it's it's with it's it's a, it's earnest like you were saying it's, it comes from a place of of desire and there's there's irony without throughout the book and there's problems but I I, I find that attempt produces more empathetic literature and more interesting that that's just gonna last even with all its issues Whereas something like this he's 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 not even attempting I mean he's just embracing hedonism as a sort of uh, yeah. but so he, billboard for his own dis, you know like look the world is so fucked up, so look how fucked up I can be and get away with it, and I don't even know if he's quite aware of um well, like, okay, here's, here, here, here's my question to you guys. There's this, you know, he has all these paranoid fantasies. And when they're in the drug, because the second half of the book, they go to the DA convention. So they're surrounded by drug enforcement agencies <laughs> while they're on all these drugs. And he's, he's mocking the people around him. And he has this uh, this passage where he goes, this is the kind of dangerous gibberish that used to be posted in the form of mimeographed bulletins in police department locker rooms. And then he goes into, you know, his version of what that um what that posting would look like know your dope fiend your life may depend on it you will not be able to see his eyes because of tea shades but his knuckles will be white from inner tension and his pants will be crusted from semen from constantly jacking off when he can't find a rape victim he will stagger and babble when questioned he will not respect your badge the dope fiend fears nothing he will attack for no reason with every weapon in his command including yours and, like, that's a funny passage because you're supposed to be on his side going, oh, my God, the cops don't understand dope fiends. They're so over the top. But then if you actually think about it, okay, they've already raped a woman. They've already attacked somebody with a knife. Uh, they babble when questioned. They, they don't uh, trust badges. So he's literally describing him and the attorney. Right. Like, he's done everything that he's mocking the cops for thinking he – is do you think Hunter S Thompson is aware of that? Of irony, course. Is my yes. yes. Really? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So that's so you think that Yeah. So you think that the joke in this is that that he's mocking himself for being exactly the dopamine that the cops are Yes. What's
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of self-loathing here. Yeah, I mean that's why it's
1: called fear and loathing.
2: <laughs> and he's also not like you're grouping him and the attorney really close together, but I think they're very deliberately separated in terms of their level of criminal activity in a way that seems deliberate to me. Mm-hmm. Like, it, mm-hmm. I feel like Hunter S. Thompson knows that if he had sex with an underage girl, it wouldn't be good for the narrative in the same way that it's, like, a weird aside for his sidekick to do it. I'm not excusing right. it at all, but it does seem, like, controlled in that way, you know?
0: Absolutely. Right, and I guess that's part of the problem. Like the, the self-loathing doesn't actually get investigated. No, in this I mean,
1: book. It's, there's not there's not an empathetic connection that you're making to anyone in the book. You know, that's the, you don't you don't close this book and be like, man, I feel like a warmth yeah. towards you know towards <laughs> the dude <laughs> or whatever. My best friend you know, S. Thompson. No, I, I, and I don't think that's the intent. But, you know,
0: part of the thing... But but you said that every all your friends did exactly what this book... And I feel the oh, same yeah, way. The... Like, everybody I know that, that enjoyed this book, that's the exact response. Yeah. It was like, let's do as much as many drugs. Let's let's embrace this sort of thing because it's funny right. and it's fun. Therefore, it has some kind of meaning. And I'm like, well, that's pretty awful. It's awful, well, but
1: it's also, definitely. you know, it's it's what... Young sociopaths do, <laughs> you know, is, is they model behavior over someone else who's having a good time who gets away with it. So it's the yeah. getting away with it that is the fun part of it. The thing about yeah, right. the Hunter S. Thompson character talking his way out of the ticket is he should be imprisoned, but because he's this white guy in this car... He, he's not viewed as a threat to these cops. He's just a guy in a car. They're going to let him go. If he were but one of those long-haired guys or a black guy or something else, like he says, essentially, he'd be he'd be doing 20 years for having marijuana or 10 years for this or 10 years for that.
2: But he knows that. Right. He knows that. Like, that, that passage, this was another point where I laughed. You know, he's like, here's how you get away from a cop. You go 100 miles an hour, but you keep your blinker on so you're confused. And then and he, like, successfully ex- executes this, like, ridiculous chase... And then he's like, "But I forgot I was holding a beer in my hand right. the whole time." And then
1: he hands in the beer, um, which is amusing.
2: <laughs> and I think it's it's interesting what you're saying because, like, he knows he's getting away with it. I right. think there's more self awareness here than you think, Ryder. And like to go back to the Jack Kerouac point. Now, I really like On the Road, and I read Dharma Bumps a long time ago too, and really liked it. But like, if the only difference between them is like intent and self-reflection. That's good for literature, but in terms of character and at the end of the day, who's making a social impact, like they're really doing the exact same fucking thing. Just one stop. Which is driving around, (laughs) like deciding how everybody is, thinking about society, think they know better than everybody. And this has a perspective that's like, ha ha, I don't know, oh fuck it. And Other road trip narratives are a lot more like, I drove for two weeks, and now I know everything. I, and right, I, think, I really well, do ask, it, which is more annoying? I think
1: we're forgetting well, the I, third I think, part of this. I think I think there's on the road, I think there's fear and loathing, and then I think the third part is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I believe yes. Ferris is essentially <laughs> Hunter S. Hunter. Yes. Hunter S. Yes. Thompson yes. as a high school student, without the drums. Well, no,
0: what, what, uh, what I'll say is that as a sort of co- force of culture and a force of literature, you look at the beat. I mean, look when you're talking about these both both artists, they both died drunks, miserable, angry at the world. Right. Like these are like, the, we're not, I'm not like saying that Kerouac was a, a you know, this great, pop, but I think that his literature is much more interesting and in depth and better written. Yeah, I'll that's just say true. that as a blanket right. statement, true. but, yeah, and, and more self-critical to a, to a degree. But, and that was the point is the self-criticism was sort of baked in, in a way that I don't find it as much in this. But I also just as a sort of cultural, um, a force of a cultural force and how literature contributed to our pop cultural sensibilities, you have the beats led by Kerouac giving us the 1960s you have Hunter s Thompson giving us the reagan 80 s and I mm-hmm. like like the hedonism of the the 70s generation and the the idea that like oh we can we can just sort of criticize and be the merry tricksters on our drugs led us right to. All the financial crisis right. that, and yeah. all, you know, every American Psycho, like American Psycho, is to me exactly the culture you get because of the, the attitude of the early '70s and the literature like this that sort of celebrated that attitude and you know ensconces it in this 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 form. I, I you know so that's my you know but yeah that's that's my issue. With I think it. you're um, right.
2: I think you're right. I mean it's just. I don't feel as upset about it. Because it's not related. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a personal rejection of a book but I But see, here's the,
1: here's the thing, though, right. for me, also, is that he... What that what this book did culturally for Las Vegas is it, it changed the attitude of the people coming to visit that town. So it used to be a nightclub town. Like, it used to be people got dressed up and gambled and had a good time there. And yeah, it was run by organized crime. Um, but... Post Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, it became a place where you came to be an asshole. Like, it was a place you came to trip out at Circus Circus. I can't tell you how many times I was in Circus Circus with a bunch of guys so tripped, balls up, you know, playing fucking arcade games at Circus Circus um, or being around any of those people. So there's that part of it. But there's also, I mean, there's a reality in in the Vegas part of that era where the cops at the time would essentially arrest anyone who didn't look right and and drive them out of the city or beat the shit out of them. I have a friend who was a, a Vegas cop in this era, um, and he had just come back from Vietnam. He had been a Green Beret in Vietnam and then came back and got hired as a Vegas cop. And he used to arrest people for, quote, shuffling and moseying. And, like, that was... That was the criminal code under which he would arrest black people and hippies, shuffling and moseying. And they would drive him to the edge of town, kick him out of the car, and say, find your way home. And what I think people forget is that up until, like, the mid-1970s, Las Vegas Strip, of course, was always Las Vegas Strip. There's gambling and, you know, sex and booze and all that stuff. But Vegas itself is a really conservative area. It's primarily, at the time, primarily Mormon. Um, and it still has a huge Mormon community out there. And it's a huge conservative community. Las Vegas itself is, you know, it's getting more and more liberal now. But, you know, it, it, they, they have always skewed super conservative outside of the Strip. The people who actually live there are conservative, which is weird because they all give into the gambling community. Um, and so Thompson, I think, changed the view of Las Vegas. He changed the view of what you can get away with there. And I think that actually this book had a fundamental reaction, which is that people took in that idea of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas because of this book, because it wasn't like that before. And and so I think that there is a real tangible cultural shift because of the experiences in this book that Thompson creates or experienced or whatever. Um, You know, using Las Vegas as an example of the Petri dish of Americana is bullshit because in this book, none of the people he encounters live there. Everyone that he encounters is there for a convention. So, except for maybe the, the waiters, the waitresses, who are the most normal people that he encounters. Um, and so there's, there's a, I have a lot wrapped up into it because having lived there and, and devoted a lot of my time to studying the place, it wasn't always this haven for assholes other than the organized crime. <laughs> it used to be something else. And I think Thompson is, you know, he's directly responsible for it.
0: Right, it's you know a lot of what we've been talking about, or you know, I think a lot of my concerns can kind of boil down to the whole like bad reader, bad viewer idea. Mm-hmm. You know, like that there are there are people that watch Sopranos because it's like badass heroes, right. uh, you know, kicking ass, as opposed to seeing it for what you know the authors were intending. Hopefully, that these guys are horrible, yeah. they're murderers, you know, and we're supposed to be judging them. And I feel like Thompson. I just don't. I don't get enough of his intention. You know, like I said, besides that one passage, where I go, oh, there's a there's a, cr- a cultural critical mind at work here that is interesting and has something to say, and you know that's probably my own fault because I've never read anything else by the guy, mm-hmm. so I probably need to do that in order. You know, but at this point, like reading this book, I'm like, what? There's nothing here. It's empty.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, looking at his political journalism, I think you'd like some of it um, from the later portion of the 1970s because. Because he got edited, <laughs> you know. Because it was edited for consumption, um, and so a lot of that stuff is collected. But like the the late '90s stuff is all terrible. And the, I mean, he just became a cartoon character after that. He's just a guy but, with the weird cigarette filter. He be something else that I I,
0: I kept thinking about while I was reading this um, was uh, you know the inter- because I was thinking about this in the context of like oh this is Gonzo journalism right sort of ushered in so many of. So many great writers and open the door in some ways, I think, um, where, you know. So the, the person I was thinking of is David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. um, because there is there is a lot of parallels in when you think about like a, a, a funny mm-hmm. thing, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, where which we read on this show where, where Wallace goes on the cruise. Right. There's an element of that in this, you know, where I where I can see like if. If I you know could erase the memory of David Foster Wallace and, and see this as like, oh, this is a guy who's an outsider in this like crazy American experiment called Las Vegas and he's supposed to love Circus circus and he just is horrified by it and it's so gross and all the money and <laughs> but it just has none of the intelligence or sensitivity right. or depression, it's, you know, the, and like you guys, the self-loathing that David Foster Wallace is able to actually articulate, and it's like that's actually your job right. as a writer is to but articulate like between, those thoughts.
1: That's between gonzo journalism and new journalism, and David Foster right. Wallace was more in the new journalism, more of the Joan Didion experiential nonfiction, but not where he's necessarily making himself the main part of the story, like. Or you know John Jeremiah Sullivan or or Leslie Jamison, um, the Empathy Exams. If if either of you read that, which was a uh, fantastic book, yeah, no, we read that for the show. Oh, that's right. Um, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. <laughs> um, but, I don't know if you guys read that. But like, I, I I encounter periodically gonzo journalists, and basically they're just alcoholics who travel and then write about yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, but I wonder, like, I guess what I was wondering
0: is, do you think David Foster Wallace loved this book? Oh,
2: yes. I bet he did. Yeah. Go, I think yes. he
1: probably I did. He did.
0: And you think, know, I think, yeah, go. On.
2: I think things are coming around on David Foster Wallace. It's he's not as revered as he was as when we met. I've seen him as a lot of punchlines and feminist jokes. Absolutely. And I it makes me sad. I mean, you guys know I, I really love some of those essays. Um, but it's certainly related. And I think, like, it's sad that what you identify as one of the big differences is how much he hated himself, because, of course, he did hate himself mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. killed himself. So right. I wouldn't. And Thompson think... killed himself,
1: too.
2: Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Um, so, like, it's just sad. It's just sad. This mm-hmm. whole entire, like, project of, like, I'm going to go kamikaze into this situation and burn out and die is depressing. And David Foster Wallace definitely fits on that timeline.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just saw... I don't know if you guys saw that movie that came out two years ago, End of the Tour. It's wonderful. I really I it. I felt like I wanted I to know. shower with SOS pads afterwards. That <laughs> I wanted to have my skin ripped off of me. And I, I don't know. I Not that I knew the guy, you know, but I have plenty of friends who are friends with him. And I just... It was just a weird experience, and also like being a writer on tour is just a weird experience in general i don't know I just I, I felt like oh the family wasn't involved, they shouldn't have made this movie I, I, it it just made me kind of nauseous I mean I watched the whole thing, but I don't know man I thought Jason
0: Siegel was a oh i don't
1: think it was i don't think it was a bad movie I thought yeah. it was a good movie I, I just was like oh god i feel I feel sort of dirty for having watched it mm hmm I don't know. And then all the stuff about him with Mary Carr. Apparently he had abused her terribly. Yeah. Stalked. Oh, God. Here's the thing. Just, men, could we just be better? Could men just be better? (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Ryder and I are going to go around the country knocking on doors. And be like, men, we're here. Be better. (laughs) I'm Todd Goldberg. He's writer strong.
0: Don't stop people. Or or we just get out of the way
1: a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> we should also let Julia talk more.
2: <laughs> <laughs> ah, uh, good Jesus. times.
1: Jesus. So, anyway, um, John Flynn York, our friend, our mutual friend, recommended that we all read this book. And. Um,
2: Writers lost another friend. It's a shame as we, as we, have we have to excise him from podcast. our lives.
1: Oh. Yeah.
0: No, John and I will go at, go at it next time. Next time I see him, we're gonna we're gonna get into Fear and Loathing, and I'm sure he'll have some some good points because he is an incredibly intelligent guy. But um, yeah, I mean, he's gonna hate this episode.
1: <laughs> what I've, I mean, it was like it was like seven years before you talked to Shiloh again after Pillars of the Earth, and he's blood. He yeah. still
0: insists on Pillars of the Earth is a good good book. So, um, <laughs> He's, he's gonna he's gonna go to the grave with that one.
1: <laughs> well, we'll you know what we'll, we'll do we'll have an anniversary uh, edition of the Pillars of the Earth. Five years we'll later, we'll read it again. We'll bring Shiloh on. We'll read it again, and he can argue his point. Um, I wouldn't want to put him in that position. Oh, I oh I would. <laughs> That'd be brutal. I would I would enjoy that. <laughs> All right, well, that was uh, Fear and Loathing Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Let us know um, on the Twitter machines um, if you loved it and why, and then we'll block you.
0: No, we (laughs) won't. No, we won't. We'll engage you in a a good discussion that will hopefully make me feel bad for things I've said. (laughs) Again,
2: your wokeness is not a problem. Neither is yours, Todd, even though you work really hard to conceal it on
1: this podcast. I do work very hard to conceal it, but I am, (laughs) if nothing else, a man of the people.